Welcome to Fable and the Verbivore. I'm Fable, Beth Stedman. I'm the Verbivore, Laura Johnson. And this is a podcast for writers who love to read. Readers who love to write. And anyone who loves words. So today we are talking about the ultimate adventure story, <laughs> The Princess Bride, <laughs> um, the book. <laughs> I'm sure oh, we'll touch on the movie yes. too, but this is a little bit special for me because I have a very vivid memory of you being the one to tell me that there even was a book of The Princess Bride. Yes. I have two books that I remember you recommending. I remember you recommending Harry Potter in high school. And I was kind of like, <laughs> eh, and I'm super ashamed of myself for that now. <laughs> it took me like another 10 years before I was like, um, it's okay. And then I remember you telling me, them. yeah, <laughs> telling me in college that the movie was not on its own or the original Princess Bride that there is a Princess Bride book and I remember picking it up and being like what is this this is crazy this is like the best thing ever (laughs) it is the best thing because it breaks every single rule and it's utter madness in like the best way possible and the opening of it is basically like it says that it's the abridged, you know, version that William Goldman abridged it from the original S. Morgenstern. You're like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> you just enter into it. And then from the very beginning of his original introduction, which now he has like a 25th anniversary introduction and a 20, <laughs> like a 30th, it's even more mad. Like, <laughs> and then you get into the book, which he's, talking as himself but like a hollywoodized terrible version of himself Mm -hmm. and from that entry into it I mean he's lying like there's so many facts in that that he's totally lying on so you're like obviously like this isn't necessarily him coming and being like I'm being authentically myself here (laughs) but it almost feels like this like satirically Hollywood like over the top insanity of what someone would think a Hollywood writer would be (laughs) when I and when I first started reading it I had no like you you didn't tell me like you didn't pre-warn me that this is a made-up character so I go into it thinking like wow this author is kind of like kind of a stereotype of Hollywood and like what what and then he starts giving facts and things saying things he's He's um, worked on and stuff. And you're like, wait, really? Like, how have I not heard of this person? And I'm like looking stuff up and like, wait, this isn't the person who did that. And like, and I'm right. confused and like, wait, is this real? I remember calling you and being like, is this a real author? Like, is he just making up this whole thing? Like, is there really a book that he's abridging? Like, yeah, there's not. It's made up. The whole thing's made up. But what's, well, but actually only he knows exactly what's true of that beginning because obviously the S. Morgan Stern total crap like all of that is fake there is no place named Florin there is no Gilder he did do Butch Cassidy in the Sundance kid like who knows what story if any of them and in one of the intros he even talks about Andre who played the giant Fezzik and he has a story about him who knows if that's true like I'm like I do not trust you at all, sir, but I have a good time while doing it. And 
when I read it, I had no idea what was and was not true, except I knew that when he was like the, the S Morgan and I looked into that, especially when there's a part where he asked like that you write into the publisher and get like an expert that he wrote, but that he didn't include. And I guess like there's a crazy letter that the publishers would send out. Like they actually would send something back, but it wasn't that excerpt. Like a crazy, like completely fictitious, completely meta, like lawyer email about all the supposed uh, Morgenstern lawsuits going on. The the man is mad, but in like... Well, that's the best way. So brilliant. It's so all over the place. That's exactly unpredictable. What's real? What's not? Comforting. (laughs) And I think that's was why it works. Why it's brilliant is because of that the satire that Mm -hmm. there are so many things in this, and and I I wanted to state up front that it's satire, and but it also gives into a lot of the things that adventure does. Like there is misogyny. There is um, difference and otherness uh, kind of is exoticized. There's um, cultural stereotypes. And who knows, since this is so st- satirical, if he leans into those things to call them out or not. And I, I still don't know. Like, it's done in the 1970s. So even just recognizing that those things are present. Um, but there is so much satire in it that is self aware that. I do feel like it wasn't completely unself-aware. Yeah, I agree with that. It feels um, intentional. In setting up a distasteful author character who's doing the abridging of it, Mm -hmm. the best thing, the only good thing about him is this story and this love of this story. Like everything else you see about him is just repulsive, (laughs) like completely. There's something we had talked a bit ago about um, Citizen Kane and like the rosebud and like the the element of that sled. And at the end of his life, he's thinking back on the sled and there's something that is so like steeped in almost like purity of childhood of this like joy that as as we can as adults, we can think back Mm -hmm. of things like that, that we experienced as kids, even if it wasn't a sled. And I, I feel this way about the book, even if Princess Bride itself wasn't what was read. For me, it was totally the voyage of the Dawn Shutter. Like I s- remember sitting there and like being shaken to my core. My dad had us gathered around and was, was reading it. And there's this part with the dragon and so many moments that yeah. it's just like, it becomes a part of you. and him talking about his relationship with his dad and even though there were things that he didn't connect with his dad on there's something very like relatable even so like of that relationship I think like something pure and and when you're sick like being able to be comforted by something yes by a story yeah and I think it is interesting that he I mean as he talks about this book that was read to him that meant something to him he's also he kind of like jumps between these memories and then the present and he, he's horrible in the present yes. <laughs> as we've yes. established <laughs> but you kind of get this sense of like how far he's wandered away from that 
kid who loved stories. Yes. And you kind of get the sense of how he even got there, that that love for story even led him down this road that kind of led him to this corrupted place, which is sort of an interesting thing in and of itself. There's so many like little things in this yes. too, I feel like you could pull out. Like, yeah, e- even the fact that like, you're right, I think it is this like stereotypical Hollywood character which is probably exactly the kind of character who was making adventure stories in the 70s like when it was so big, absolutely you know? like this is like, i don't know it it feels very authentic even though it's not authentic at all. it does it feels like and i don't know if he had anyone in mind that he's literally lampooning which he totally might and it's almost like trying to get into the context of exactly like I, and he's the type of person who, in other works, does do that, like, does call people out. And so I'm like, I, I think that's definitely possible. Yeah. And I do like, as they, as they get into, like, how terrible he is, like, getting back in touch with what he had hoped for his son, even though he has yeah. terrible relationship with him, and him trying to find the book, and yeah. that being, like, he has the opportunity to to have an affair, like, and to do something terrible. But getting back to that, he actually wants to give his son the experience that he got so much. He actually, in some ways, is a better person for like for trying that. to yeah. recapture some of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I liked that element of I I think stories can bring out a better part of ourselves or at least a more well-rounded one one that that kind of looks at it from someone else's perspective and I liked that little element of it even even if it's just a way to get into the story yeah itself (laughs) it still mind boggles me like how you come up with an idea like this like to take your story and then essentially like put it in the framework of this other story of this other person trying to find this fictional book and abridging it and then (laughs) putting all this commentary and you know like I just would never have thought of like formatting a book that way or structuring a book that way and it's just it's kind of brilliant it's inception like literally it's like how many layers are you in and who is the person (laughs) giving the aside is it Mm -hmm. italics or is it in parentheses and I like that probably uh, there's a part where he references his editor and I wonder if an editor was like you need to separate out (laughs) who is your fictitious Morgan Stern talking and who is fictitious you talking (laughs) but I I do think that there's probably an editor who got this draft and who is like you need to make sense of what is the Morgan Stern fictitious character breaking into the normal narrative and what is you breaking in to the abridged narrative like I I feel like someone had to like wrangle him in because it's just especially at the beginning like yeah all of the parentheses and the cut-in yes this is before that but delightful like (laughs) right and like I love the like stew and like being green with envy about ginkgos and and cactus and you're sitting there reading it and you're like I I have no idea how to respond to this yeah it is is so funny and it doesn't take itself seriously 
mm-hmm. at all. But it also like has, even though it's mad, it has so much that's just delicious about he gets adventure. He gets yeah. like setting you on edge and doing crazy stuff and asking a question. Like he sets up the men in black and you're like, yeah. who's the men in black? Like she's walking through the courtyard and he's in the corner and, and it holds that back for so long. Yes. <laughs> you're like, what? Like, <laughs> Which is so good. It's like that, that scene actually where she goes out into the courtyard and he, he's like describing all these people and everything and how they're all excited. And then, but three of them want to kill her, you know? And it's like, what? Yes. Wait, like that is such a great little suspense intrigue, like little moment. And then you get this description of this man in black watching her. He, he is clearly angry, but you don't know why. And is he one of these three that want to murder her? Is he someone else? Who is he? And then, you know, like so many great questions planted there it's so good and and the fact that he calls them murderers and then he like shifts to calling them kidnappers and then like he calls them by their nationality like he calls you know Inigo the Spaniard he calls Fezzik the Turk the Sicilian is you know uh, Vincini is the Sicilian and so you get that for a good scene and then all of a sudden he drops you into Inigo's perspective. And I thought it was like, even though he head tops so much. Oh yes, there's tons of eclipse of insanity. And he doesn't, he doesn't warn you at all. Like no. literally, you're just like constantly during that scene. Like, what? Like yes. whose perspective am I in? Like you just keep jumping. But I think revealing Inigo's story you all of a sudden get okay there's other things going on here than just what we have been led to believe who are these each person and then getting like the truth of Fezzik's story I like how he almost by a magic trick is able in one scene to get you all of a sudden you get who Inigo is and you're like Oh my goodness. Like I am actually like feeling something for him. And then it makes that duel like really complicated because you're like, I don't know who I'm rooting for. I don't know who I'm hoping to win. Well, and it, and that's just so brilliant to give the audience like just little bits, like a little more, a little more, a little more to kind of pull them along and pull them into these characters. So that by the time you get to that, the end of that section you actually care about the people who kidnapped her yes absolutely and you start to really question you start to question the shape of things and like who is on what side the duel and how it's laid out in terms of like the stage he set for it I mean obviously in the movie you get that great like you can see it even before it but you're like this is going to be a great place for a duel (laughs) but like as he describes it he has Inigo thinking of it as someone who is about to fence wood and like looking at all the different okay there's a cliff here and he would need to adjust for that and I love that then in the movie, they decided to take a lot of that kind of shop talk out into the dialogue, which is how you get the, but I yeah. find that Tybalt, you know, Cap yeah. and Tara, and, and they're talking about the sword moves as they're doing it. And I, I kind of loved that, that 
it was so intentional about being in that perspective because you couldn't yet know anything about the men in black. You had to stay with Inigo and getting that understanding of, okay, we need to have someone to root for in this sequence, even if ultimately we know what's going to happen because it has to. Getting grounded in that one, in his perspective, and then letting it go and then doing it again with the Inigo scene. And I think, I mean, it's a lot of play. Like this one feels so much like he played with all the things that you shouldn't yes. do yes I, I mean it's so true he has so many unlikable characters or that have like terrible flaws and you're yes. like and and yet it all works <laughs> yes well even the head hopping you know like that is something that I abhor in other books I don't mind it at all yes. in this one but it kind of yes. fits because he's all over the place anyway you know <laughs> like he's got these asides, these little like commentary things he's just like jumping from future and past and just like all over it's like yeah okay head off sure that's a great point because it jumps time on you so often and often there is no signal sometimes he's nice and he gives you like the little three periods but often you're like wait where are we (laughs) what happened And, and it's like we both switched perspective and time frame and yet we didn't give you any type of warning at all like yes yeah that's just (laughs) that point like I so I you know I read this in college when you told me about it and I've seen the movie more times than I can count but then this before this episode I thought oh I'll read it with Thaddeus like my son who's 11 almost 12 um I thought oh this will be so fun he's gonna love it it'll be great (laughs) okay for starters like I don't know that I realized quite how satirical it is or how subtle yes. the humor is for an 11 yes. year old. It was a little hard to get that. Also, this character is kind of yes. horrible. So I'm like reading about this character, like thinking about having an affair. And I'm like, oh, what am I reading to my 11 year old? Like, I'm kind of like, ah, exactly. let's just get past this introduction. Like once it gets to the real story. Well, and he's like lost so much. He's like, wait, who is this person? Like, wait, wait, are we, is t- are we yes. still this one? Are, wait, no, we're over here now. Like, well, it did get better as we went. And like, as he figured out, like, oh, okay, this guy's like all over the place. But at first it was yes. rough. And I, it made me realize, like, I don't think I realized this is not a kid's book. Like, yes. Or even yeah. like, I, I don't know where I would put it even though, because it doesn't feel like, an adult fantasy but I guess that is technically what it is I guess it's an adventure story but I just I really don't know like genre wise where to put it because it's so out there it feels like really it's kind of like if you were to take Dune and then you were to add this whole like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy overlay yes. on it and and just completely mix it up with a pirate film like yeah. it, it is <laughs> I do think in some ways tropes and how things were done weren't as solidly defined. And so I I do think it's kind of one of those that, yeah, it probably wouldn't fit really closely into a specific neat little package. Like it is just kind of its own and really for satirical things, I think so my my parents watched, I watched the movie first. And what I mean by I watched the movie first is I'd probably watched the movie about 20 to 25 times before reading the book. And my parents loved the movie. So like 
they would show it all the time. Like there would be quoting. So I knew it backwards and forwards. And when I picked up the book, I then had, you know, that good, solid knowledge of that side of the story that I'm like, but what? Like, you're like, is this real? Is this not like you, you sit with it and you're like, I thought I knew what this book or this story was. And it is funny how the book is just completely, even though a lot of the dialogue, like if you were to compare is very similar, the a lot of things don't read in the same way that they do yes. on the film. Um, I think they leaned in hard with the Hollywooding up of the film, which isn't a bad thing necessarily. It was definitely a choice. But I think the humor is a lot sharper in that it's cutting. Like it is, it is um, sh- like a knife's edge where it's like you have to read something and then you're like, wait and you read over it again and you're like oh my goodness like just what it is he's saying and but it's funny how like even though it's more satirical and sometimes like the humor is dry to the point of like just ridiculously dry like you almost don't know whether to laugh or not because it's, it's also like very critiquing of society as well that you're like Oh, I feel uncomfortable right now. (laughs) Especially the fact that I'm not always sure if he's being satirical or if it's like, which I'm I'm pretty confident that it is. I pretty confidently that there's times where it's just really intensely dry humor. But the the movie itself is a lot more just out there, laugh out loud, like feel good fuzzies. But even so, like I saw it and I saw it as an adventure film. I didn't get the underlying ridiculousness of like a six finger man and Prince Humperdinck and like the machine and how insane that really (laughs) is. Like, because you see it and you get the emotion of it. And I think the acting was so good that it kind of covers up some of that like underlying humor. But in reading it, like all of that is in full force. Like yes. you, you get the ridiculous over the topness of talking about, you know, it was, it wasn't before, it was before fashion, but it wasn't before Paris. And it's yeah. like, you get how this is just like, he took a bunch of things that he wanted to say and like put it in a blender and just said, I don't care if it doesn't make any sense. We're going with it. And even though it's absurd, even though it's, you know, Douglas Adams, like beyond anything, it just works. It, yeah. it works with the tone and the marrying of the adventure to it. Yeah. It gets that rooting for something on top of the like satirical humor. Yes, totally. I, I think somehow he accomplishes to kind of like he, he breaks all the rules, but maybe the why it works is that he also keeps some of them, you know, like he still yes. hits all the main beats or notes or like things that you need to have in an adventure story. Like he's still, still this, um, like he kind of knows when to break a rule and when not to, it yes. seems like, and he does break a lot of them, but yes. he's also like, it's still telling a really good, compelling story. And like those story rules, he doesn't break, yes. um, which and, I think is interesting. And I think even like, character roles like he leans in heavily with the flaws I think Mm -hmm. I think you really can get all of those like 
character flaws by just hearing them even talking but he also like makes them just likable enough to keep with it and he keeps them moving just enough to keep you kind of going and like keeping you squarely on their side he also makes the villains so terrible like you want to see them completely and utterly like brought to their knees (laughs) and you don't feel sorry at no one a second (laughs) which especially the count like setting up I mean obviously like how sadistic the prince is like you don't feel sorry for him at all the count I would argue is a little more complicated but he gets you so into the mindset of Inigo that there's no coming back from that like and not that you would want to because these are terrible people (laughs) (laughs) well I mean we talked recently about like six of crows, like how, how much value there is in just dialing up the extreme on characters sometimes. And it feels like, like there's value in dialing up to an 11 and this is like dialed up to a 20. Every single character is just off the charts. Like they have this one flaw that he just like takes and runs with, or these handful of flaws that he just runs with. I mean, even like the bride yeah first chapter like you know in the movie you get kind of this beautiful woman who's sort of stereotypical maybe a little snappy now and then but in the book she's so over the top melodramatic she's so like ridiculous in a way that you're like oh sweetie (laughs) as I was reading her I was more annoyed than I've ever been with the because that's how adventure stories tend to write women and so as I'm reading it I'm like is he being satirical about that character is he just like not being aware and again I'm still not fully (laughs) sure one way or another yeah I'm going to hope like hope for the best and and suggest that he is equally terrible with some of his other characters, including yeah. Wesley, yeah. who is a bit of a dick, like yes, <laughs> um, and at times, and yeah. it's interesting because I didn't remember that there's a slap in it, and I'm like, oh, I'm not okay with that. Yeah, and there's certain things that, yeah, that I think I don't know how much it was that awareness or yeah. if it's that acceptance, because again, I think there are things that were allowable in westerns and adventure stories that on looking at closely are hugely misogynistic that are hugely stereotypical in offensive ways and I think continuing to acknowledge that and say like how can we do better and I do still like elements of as Buttercup is written the longer she is written the more I like elements of yeah. her. Well, and it's almost she like does he does have the same some thing form with, of arc. Yeah. It's almost like he does the same thing with her that he does with, you know, with the murderers, like starting out yeah. with this very stereotypical, like the beauty. And then he, can you kind of learn like yes. a little more about her? Oh, well, she's also melodramatic and over like the top. And yes. And then you get a little bit more and a little bit more. And it, it's kind of that same thing that you sort of start with this broad strokes picture and then you start yes. to get a little more of a full, fully rounded character, but all of them are still completely over the top. The whole time. Absolutely. And I do wonder how much of that was purposeful where he yeah. was almost like asking himself how much of a characterization do we need in order to have a story? Yeah. And I think 
probably, even though I like the characters, and I, again, I'm very much in tune with the movie in, in that I like the characters coming into the book. So yeah. who knows what is the nature of the book itself and what's the nature of all of the actors playing those roles. But there are elements that are still like even when you get to the end like you feel like there's still a little bit of this cardboardness and yet you still care like yeah I want them to succeed like I I do want the that it to be so he does succeed a bit in linking us into the strife and story of them I do wonder how much of that was purposeful like because why wouldn't you just tell the story unless you're trying to play with Right. Really, how much can you get away with? Yes, <laughs> in terms of, and it's a really interesting question because I yeah. think bringing out Six of Crows is a really good example because you don't get a lot of page time with each and every one of the characters. You It's split up between their different stories. And so when you have six characters or seven in the different stories, like sharing the narrative, you can only show so much of them. And so it's yeah. thinking about what you show and when. And making sure that right before you do a thing, you've kind of fully gotten your reader yeah. in the corner, so to speak, of that character before you do the crazy thing that's going to like challenge what it is you think about them or yeah. or where you have to have them rooting for a specific thing to happen. And it has to then twist them up when it goes awry, yeah. when it doesn't happen the way they hope. Well, and I think when you need to be economical about that, time on the page you also have to choose what things differentiate them the most from other characters so that they stand out and I think that you know like sometimes that I I think Six of Crows actually she managed to create very well-rounded characters even in a short period of time which is kind of remarkable but but you do have to kind of lean a little heavier than I think on on some stereotypes and and I think it is an interesting question like I I love super ritual well-rounded characters but I also think in certain cases, you can get away with a lot less than we think you can. Yes. I mean, even fairy tales, which we've talked about recently too, like fairy tales have zero characterization, you know, it's totally serious all the way through and it still works. We still care about them. You know, we want Cinderella yep. to get her prince. We want like the spell to be broken on beast, whatever it is. Like I, I'd argue though, like the empathy is kind of linked in with those as well. Like, because you care about the situation that Cinderella's in, like, even though you don't know her, like you, you kind of bring your baggage of yes. knowing what it's like to be in a situation that you can't get out of and yeah. that where your power is taken from you. And I think that's kind of the, the beauty of those types of stories and, and including adventure stories is yeah. I think they hook in your empathy in there. And again, like when you, have even flawed characters but you show like the glint of their soul like the thing that makes them human and the thing that is something that someone could connect with which I think is one of the reasons why like with with Inigo his relationship with his dad the fact that he loved his dad and yeah. the, their connection you know Fezzik and his like softness even though he's so big and strong like you see the softness of his soul and as he's being like shoved into all these different situations and you you can't help but love like the simplistic joy of rhyming like like I get that I love words that come together and even that continuing element of having him rhyme 
throughout and have him and Inigo care about one another. Like they even, there's moments where there's kind of this care where even though they were like part of a crime group gang or whatever, they have kind of better emotions yeah. too that, yeah. that it's not just about selfishness like it shows like little glints of their humanity even yeah. in those moments yeah I think that's a really good point about the situations that they're in producing empathy even thinking about this first like the first actual chapter of the book the bride ends with her heartache you know like the person she loved dying yes. and I don't know that you would care about the story if you didn't get that if you didn't have and, and really in some ways like as an author, I wouldn't have thought to, to do that. I think I would have yes. wanted her to want something because we're constantly told, well, the character needs a motivation. <laughs> they need yes. like, a drive forward and wanted, you know, like Wesley to want something. And so I would have said like, well, she has to then want to try to find him or get him or whatever. I would have made it so mm -hmm. that he was just gone um, and she has to try to get to him or like, but it's brilliant to instead have him die and have her heartbroken. Yes. <laughs> and you end this chapter with her just like, devastated I'm never gonna love again you know like and you kind of yeah. feel like wait like it pulls you in a different way instead of pulling you in like yes. I want to see if this character is going to get what they want instead you're just yes. like wait that like that can't happen like, that's, like, no, that's, that's like the end of a story not the beginning of a story like, wait, you know? and can we say how many times he does that like yes. he does it so many times that you're like wait but everything that they've just been working for like that I think sometimes it doesn't always work. Like sometimes yeah. the pace of the story is just thrown completely off because of a choice he decided to make. And even tipping his hand with the italics, like those are bold moves. There's times where he actually like gives away that yes. it's okay. Like <laughs> well, this is the sharp part. Like, yes, absolutely. That is so brilliant because if he had yes. just kept going and hadn't interrupted it, then the tension is all gone in the next sentence, you know, like, or in the next Absolutely. few sentences, like you get only a little bit of tension, but it, he interrupts it to tell you that she's going to be okay, which you would think would kill the tension, but it doesn't because you want to know how she's going to be okay. Yes. So instead it drags the tension yes. on for a whole other page of his interruption. <laughs> well, and it's funny because I always wish that they were the shrieking eels because that is the part I love most yeah. you know you know what that sound is those are the shrieking eels yeah. but I love that I love that part too like that he takes that chance to then also reestablish, I think the the mode of storytelling and the tone of that story to kind of keep it in that place because then he gives away something even bigger and he doesn't tell you what the outcome is going to be. And I think then you believe him. Like yeah. he, he catches you looking several times where it's like, all of a sudden you think, oh, this is how the game is played. I know the rules. And then he like changes the rules on you. Yes. I think those elements of really getting you to believe that something goes in a certain way you then look for it to happen again you look for a, that pattern that's been established and then it actually like once you're in those higher stakes moments it ups that tension because you think you know where the story is going to go and then he brings it back around on you especially towards the end yeah totally 
we've talked a little bit about Save the Cat and you kind of have these like story beats and you have that all is not lost. And the yes. all is lost comes at the in the third act, you know, like it comes late. But I feel like you get the all is lost like over and over and over again in this book. And Several he's not times. afraid to do it right at the beginning. And then again, and then again, it's just like. Yes. Great. Well, and I think. I think that challenge is what is a narrative and like what does it need to make us feel at certain points and what if you're already linked into the story because even by the time we're at the bride we've already heard so much about this story and he's even given like little glimpses of what's to come yeah that he's like oh but then there's the cliffs of insanity and so you're like well, they're called the Cliffs of Insanity. I have to see what that is about. And that, again, it's it's a using the very weird method of storytelling to then almost like prop up the anticipation for your own yeah. book by talking about sections that are yet to come. <laughs> You're in that space of being like, okay, I know that that's coming. And I know that this is going to be, I love like the, this is going to be the hard part. Like basically strap in because life's not fair and I'm going to show that in the next however many odd pages so just hang tight and I like that he faces that head on like and he even tells you that like that as a kid it was hard to like sit through those parts and even though he's totally lying about all that it keeps the reader realizing okay like we'll get there like wherever there is I think this is one of those books that reminds me, like, it feels like the kind of book that, that required some courage and bravery. Like, it just reminds me too, that nothing's off limits. Like you can try things and you can try really extreme things and you never know it might work. Like it might not. Sure. You have to kind of experiment, but I feel like this book is also like, like this feels like someone who is so sure of themselves and knew what they wanted to say and knew what they liked and knew what, what would be fun or, you know, like that they were able to kind of throw out that fear and just like, write, And I, that it's astonishing to me. <laughs> I'm not there yet. Absolutely. Well, and I think that he isn't lying when he's saying how much he loves adventure stories and that I think that from what he has done, I don't think any of that was an untruth, maybe how it happened. And he yeah. became such a big fan of adventure stories. You know, he talks about Dumas and he talks about growing up watching different films and like I think all of that again he did Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid like he and he did the screenplay for when they actually did on the Princess Bride like he gets adventure yeah and can I actually read like the part that talks about the story just real quick they do it also in the movie and they do it kind of differently some of it jumps into cliches but basically at the beginning it's basically that this story has fencing, fighting, torture, poison, true love, hate, revenge, giants, hunters, good men, bad men, beautifulest ladies, snakes, spiders, beasts of all natures and pain, death, brave men, coward men, strongest men, chases, escapes, lies, truths, passion, miracles. I feel like every single element that could be present that he actually includes his dad saying at the beginning and kind of like selling this book Mm -hmm. and I think that there's something very 
truthful about listening to that and like having it flare something in you that there's something, I mean, we could argue about like, what is the role of women in this, these stories? And I like that that's being challenged, but I do like that there's something about those, that list of words that kind of connects with some excitement Mm -hmm. and interest. And I like that there's so much of this story that once you get into it, once he's hooked you into it, even with all of the interruptions, nothing can really take away from the fact that it's just a fun, insane, but really ultimately satisfying adventure tale, even with all the meta where you're not sure how much he's lying, where you're not sure exactly what's true or not. Like, it doesn't matter almost like yeah. it's just so much fun and there's elements of that that's just you know it's crazy it's nuts and over the top sometimes it takes itself really seriously and sometimes it doesn't at all yes. and from a tone standpoint it kind of is a little bit all over the place but when you get down to it I kind of agree with um and I I don't want to give away necessarily but there's an openness to the ending that kind of lets you bring what you want and take what you want out of the story. And for me, like, I always agree with his takeaway of it, um, of what the meaning of the story is. Like, even with all of it in there, like, I love that in the end, like, for me, at least, he gets me to care. And I think that's, you know, to be able to do that, to have a mad story that's funny and that has a lot to say even yeah. about life in places <laughs> and that has so many just nuts like out of left field you're like that's just crazy <laughs> but he gets you to care in the end and there's parts that even emotionally like I connect with Buttercup has this really great speech where she kind of steps into her own voice and yeah. I I think almost there's parts of that where you almost see that he hasn't done a, you know, as, a, as whoever the author is, has not really given her the chance to shine or to really fully be herself. And I think there's a part where you kind of see an element to her that you may not have seen before. And I, I like that element of it. I like um, just the heart, I think, within some of the characters that even with all their flaws, there's so much that's relatable, but there's also like, they keep going. <laughs> they they keep going. I agree completely. So if you have not read The Princess Bride, the book, <laughs> we highly recommend it. It's a delightful read. Totally crazy, but totally fun. And just a great example of something yes. that is possible to do with a story, I think. So keep reading, keep reading adventure stories, keep reading all kinds of stories, keep writing and trying things out, even different than people say you should do it. (laughs) Feel free to break the rules and experiment. And yeah, keep putting your work out in the world. We are glad you joined us and we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, we hope you'd subscribe and find us on Instagram and connect with us there. We would love that too. 